sermon text for today is out of the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 10. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. We're continuing today our series of Advent. The word Advent means coming or arrival. This is a season that the church has celebrated for centuries, and all of you have participated in the observance of Advent. If you're here today, that's what we're doing. If you've ever attended a Christmas Eve service, that's what that is. Um, during Advent, we teach our hearts to do something that we don't do very well, which is waiting. Advent is a season of waiting, and as we remember that Jesus came, we remember that he is coming again. So we wait. We, we, see, we see the tension on our stage even this morning, right? Five candles, four of them lit, one of them still yet to be lit and will be lit tonight. Each week we remember one word, hope, peace, joy, and love. A point forward to Christ, to the great center candle, white candle, and each candle reminds us that Christmas is about waiting. But Christmas is not just about waiting. Christmas is about waiting, remembering that God fulfilled his promises. So today we turn to the word love. In the early years of the United States of America, our monetary system was quite unstable with Without a standardized currency, English, Spanish, French coins flooded the markets, all to different standards of weight and different sta standards of purity. The exchange of these coins created a messy trading system. Understanding the need for monetary stability, Congress passed that Coinage Act of 1792, signed by President George Washington. That was the inception of the dollar. This act established bimetallism, meaning there are two metals that will be accepted as currency, gold and silver. The act also established a ratio of 15 to 1, meaning 15 um, silver coins would equal one gold coin. About 80 years later, the Coinage Act of 1873 dropped silver as a standard and the U.S. currency became completely dependent on gold alone. This is called the golden standard. Even as bills became introduced, the equivalent value of a bill needed to be backed up by an equivalent accumulation of gold. Another hundred years passed. In 1971, President Richard Nixon removed the U.S. from the golden standard. And today, no longer does the value of gold control the value of our currency. Rather, 
government declares the value of our currency according to economic necessities. We've moved from the golden standard to what is called a fiat currency. The word fiat means a declaration. I'm not an economist, but it seems to me that gold is more stable than the government's power of fiat. Gold is more stable than the government's power to declare something valuable or not. And I think we see this stability in our, or lack of stability in our economy even today. As we consider the word love, there's a lesson here for us to learn, isn't there? The value of love is not based on the power of fiat. The value of love is not based on the power of declaration. The value of love, rather, is rooted in actions rather than mere words. Actions are like gold. Words are merely fiat. John tells us that in the very book that we're studying today, a few chapters earlier. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The book of 1 John was written to give believers assurance that we know the Lord. So John puts some tests before believers. Really, John puts some tests before us. It's almost a call to self-examination. But not in order to breed doubt. That's not John's goal. Instead, John's goal is to create confidence in us that we belong to God. 1 John 5.13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you see? Do you see his goal? So one of the greatest tests that John puts before us is the test of love. Basically, John is saying, if you believe in God, your faith will be authenticated. Your faith will be made evidence, evident by your love for God and your love for others. The Christian faith is not a word-only faith. The Christian faith is a faith of word Indeed, we often say that we're not saved by works. And yet we must also say that the works that we produce are a necessary evidence of true, genuine faith. More importantly, John seeks to assure us of our faith not by pointing out our love for one another, but by reminding us that God loves us. 
And through this knowledge and understanding, John seeks to spur us to love one another. God's love for us is the gold standard. God's love for us is what assures us that our love for him is genuine. It is true. And this gold standard produces another gold standard, which is love. Our love for God is a result of God's love for us. And God's love for us is made most clear in the giving of his son. So as we turn to our text today, we'll be reminded that God manifests his love for us in, in the most perfect way. So we'll consider two points for our text tonight, this morning. God's love is proactive. And then we'll consider God's love is propitiatory. Proactive and propitiatory. So God's love is proactive. God is not reactive. God is not driven by his passions. This is not saying that God has no passions, but his passions flow naturally and under control out of his nature. And what is God's nature? God in his nature is love. We see this very clearly just a few verses earlier, right? 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. Love comes from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John has to tell us, let us love one another. But no one needs to tell God, you must love others. You must love us. No one needs to tell God, you must love humanity. Why? Because love flows naturally from God. But the same is not true of us. We need to be reminded. More than that, we need to be Regenerated. Did you hear that? Whoever loves or whoever loves God has been born of God. True love only comes out of us once we know God. So it's not just that we need to be told we must love God. We must be born from God or of God in order for us to love God. Those who have been born again truly love God. So this is why John starts verse 10 by saying, in this is love. So he's about to describe love, right? So if love is such a great virtue for the Christian faith, we must listen now. Because he's just saying, in this is love. Here's his, his description. Here's the negation. Not that we have loved God. So, so John is saying, I'm going to describe love. And then he immediately says, not you. Not you. In other words, not that we have initiated our pursuit of God. Not that we have sought God out of the goodness of our hearts. Friend, this statement may come as a surprise to you. But I must tell you that it is 
impossible for you to love God. In our nature, we do not love God. In our nature, we are doomed to the hatred of God. We're born enemies of the cross. We're born opposite to God and opposite to His purposes and His will to our life. The reason why we're often confused about this is because we have created our own false gods and we love them. Sometimes they look a lot like the God of the Bible. It is easy to love an idol, but it is impossible in our natural state to love God. These false gods we created are called items, and we fashion them after our own image and resemblance. And then we tell ourselves that they're God, and we love them. So if you have not come to Christ in faith and repentance, and you believe you love God, you do not. You love a God that you made yourself. Not surprisingly, John ends his letter with an apparently odd statement where he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because idols give us the impression of love. But they lead us astray. It is easy for us to mislead ourselves and tell us that we are okay with God when we love idols, but we actually don't love God. By nature, we reserve the throne of our hearts to the most powerful idol that there is, the idol of self. So, how do we break free from this? Not that you have loved God. How do we break free from idolatry? From the idolatry of self? How do we break free from our inability to love God? We don't. So the text says, we don't. God does. God himself breaks us free from our idolatry of self. John says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Meaning God's love transforms our love. It is through experiencing his love that we learn to love him in return. So we're completely dependent on God, aren't we? Have you ever tried to love someone who didn't love you? I'm not talking about romantic infatuation. I'm talking about seeking to love in Christ genuinely someone who really didn't love you back. It's hard, isn't it? To love someone who offended you. To love someone who hurt you. To love someone who is hard to love is hard. And I am sure that if you're anything like me, you have failed to love those who are hard to love in many ways before. But this is not true of God. Because God met us when we were unlovable. 
We hated God and positioned ourselves as enemies of God, but God, in spite of our sin, loved us. And his love for us changed us. So if we love God today, we know why, right? 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. The very popular novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, depicts the idea of transformative love so well. The main character, Jean Valjean, is a hardened criminal who was released from prison after 19 years of harsh treatment as he found himself in the streets of Digne, France. He received no help. He actually found himself kicked out of a manger, of a stable. By the way, the parallels with the gospel are many in this novel. Uh, Jean Valjean is a, is a clear example of one who has received uh, the grace of God, and yet the law pursues him. He receives the gospel, and the law tries to condemn him. So he finds no help. Save one man, a bishop, Bishop Miriel, also known as Monseigneur Bienvenu, pardon my French, who took him in, fed him, and cared for him. Valjean, in response, stole several pieces of silver and ran away. He was caught and brought back to Bishop Miriel, who instead of turning him in, gave him more silver on top of what he had stolen and told him, use these riches to act like an honest man. This was a pivotal moment in the life of Jean Valjean, who, because he was shown mercy, became merciful. Because he was shown love, became a loving man. This is a picture of the gospel, isn't it? Because we've been shown the mercy of God, we're now to show mercy. Listen to how Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that, okay, if you, if you take notes, okay, circle those words because we're about to be given the purpose, the reason why God shows us mercy, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see it? God's mercy makes us merciful. God's love makes us loving. You're probably going to have the opportunity to love those who do not love you this Christmas. It may be at your family Christmas party. Perhaps someone will annoy you. It may be the crazy uncle and his conspiracy theories. People say that if you think your family doesn't have a crazy uncle... You are the crazy uncle yourself. I heard that a few weeks ago, and I realized that my family does not have a crazy uncle. <laughs> but in all seriousness, 
If God loved you first, you go and love those who annoy you. Perhaps someone will say something that will offend you in the next few days. They may say something wrong, untrue, unethical, unkind. But we shouldn't be easily offended, right? Christians can't be easily offended. Why? Right? Because because love covers a multitude of sins. Perhaps someone will forget you, forget to call you. Perhaps it is not the reunion that will hurt you, but the lack thereof. Somebody will forget to reach out to you on Christmas Day. Perhaps it may be a child you yourself raised, a friend you cherish, someone you hold in high esteem. And yet, if God loved you with an uninitiated love, you love them even if they don't love you back. Perhaps you'll be sitting these next few days with people who have hurt you. Perhaps even people who have hurt you deeply. You have struggled with their presence for a long time, but you can't avoid it. And yet, because God loved you first, you go and love them. Loving the unlovable is not easy. Loving the unlovable is actually impossible. But the power of the gospel enables us to do what is hard. The power of the gospel actually enables us to do that which is impossible. May our love be proactive, not reactive. May we not just love those who love us, but may we seek to love those who do not love us. And may others say of us, he loved me or she loved me when I was unlovable. May others see the love of God in us and come to Christ because of it. Okay, now let's consider my second point. God's love is propitiatory. Now, I know I'm giving you a big word here, okay? And I'm not going to define it just yet, but I will get to the definition of the word in just a minute. So, so far, we've considered that God loved us first. That God didn't love us because we first loved Him. God didn't love us because we were lovable. God didn't love us because of us. God loved us because He is love. Love flows from Him. But how exactly does God demonstrate love to us? This is the question we want to pursue from here on. So, remember I said that God's love is the gold standard, right? It's backed up by actions. It is what creates true love in us. It is not a love that is based on fiat or declaration. You've heard it said before, talk is cheap. But God is not all talk. But what action has God taken to demonstrate His love for us? John tells us. He says, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son. This is Christmas, isn't it? At Christmas, God sent his son. The great mystery of Christmas is not that a baby was born. That happens all the time. Isn't our church wonderful how many babies we have? How many children we have? That's a common event, right? Praise God for that. What is special about Christmas is that that baby was the Son of God. That He gave. That He gave to us. So God demonstrates His love for us by giving us His Son, Jesus. This is at the heart of God's love. I wonder if you ever thought of this. Love and giving are intrinsically connected. It's inseparable. Love gives. Notice how often love is associated with, with giving just in the New Testament. John 3.16, we read this earlier. For God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 13.3 If I give away all I have, so give, right? And deliver up my body to be burned, give again, but have no love. I gain nothing. You see it? Giving and love must go together. 2 Corinthians 9.3, even with generous physical giving, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctant or under compulsion. Compulsion. For God loves the cheerful giver. You see it? Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And here's the other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He gave his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So this is just a brief sample of verses that connect giving with love in the New Testament. Love and generosity. Think of people you know who have demonstrated love to you by being generous towards you. Be it physical giving, be it time, be it consideration, be it honor. Do you or did you feel loved by them when you were experiencing their generosity? The answer is, of course you did. Of course you did. Because generosity is one of the clearest examples of love. I have two children that are very different from each other. But they're both very generous in their own way. Boaz is affectionate. He will never withhold a hug or a kiss. I can even hug my wife because he wants to come in between us and hug us instead. He loves to give himself through affection. Elise, on the other hand, whenever I ask her for a hug or a kiss, I receive a push. I have been asking for a kiss and a hug daily, and I'm still waiting for, there, for that for the past year and a half. That's how old she is. But Elise demonstrates love in a different way. If she has something in her hand, be it a banana, 
or a toy, a squished leaf or a cookie, or a cookie that fell on the floor. <laughs> yes. She will always come to you with an open hand to share what she has. My, my children remind me of God in many ways, don't they? This is God-like, that they would be so giving. Whoever gives, loves. We give because we love. Think of those that you give of yourself generously. Why do you do that? It is because you love them. And God gives because he loves. We give imperfectly, right? but God gives perfectly. God is a giver par excellence. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, if you have experienced anything good in your life, it has come from God. It has not come from anyone else but God. Now listen to this verse out of Romans 8, more specifically telling us of the love that God has for believers. Romans 8.32, Him who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? This verse is so radical, isn't it? God will not withhold from us Anything that is good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your stage of life right now, in whatever circumstances you're going through right now, do you believe that God is not withholding anything good from you? Well, friends, the Bible tells us that. And we must believe that. He is not just a gracious giver. God is a generous, gracious giver. Sometimes we can assume that God will give us everything we want. That's not what that verse is saying. We can confuse God with a genie in, in a bottle. So we fall into the trappings of the false gospel proclaimed by prosperity preachers. If you have enough faith, God will give you health, wealth, and prosperity. If you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. That's not true. God gives riches to some, poverty to others. God gives health to some and sickness to others. And even so, whatever God has granted us, He has not withheld from us anything good. God is not concerned about giving us what we want because what we want and what we need are often not the same thing. So when the Bible says that God will not withhold anything good from us, the Bible means anything that we need. So what do we need? What is it that we need that God gives us? What is it that God gives us so generously that meets our needs? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ meets all of our needs. 
More precisely, God gives us Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you hear that in the text? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. So here comes the word propitiation. Told you I would define it later. So what does it mean? What does propitiation mean? Propitiation comes from the Greek philosmos, which means a sacrifice that appeases the anger of God. I went to a Greek market once down in South Florida, and I was talking to the Greek people, and I told them when I went to seminary, I took Greek. And so they asked me, you know, what do you know how to say? And I said, I know how to say hilosmos, and they were looking at me with a blank stare. And we don't know what that means. I told them, I don't know how to say where is the bathroom, but I do know how to say propitiation. <laughs> hilosmos is a sacrifice that appeases the anger of God. It's not just a sacrifice, right? Sacrifice can be made any day. Sacrifices have been made since the fall of man. It's a sacrifice that turns the anger of God into peace. And now you might be asking the question, why is God angry? And the answer is, God is angry because of sin. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. Our sin angers God. But God provides a propitiation. God is not angry because of emotional, capricious reasons. Just as I said earlier that God will never, uh, God's love is never reactive. It is also true that God's anger is never reactive. God's anger is an outflow of his justice and holiness. God made a world to be perfect and our sin devastated the world that he created. And God pours out his anger on humanity because of our sin. We have sinned against God and he rightly judges us for our sins. God is just, and if he did not pour out his anger, his justice would not be true. This is a great problem. But God himself gives us the solution. God has given men and women an opportunity to be forgiven from their sin by trusting in a propitiatory sacrifice. This is how God has been working with humanity from the very beginning. God's natural, in our fallen nature, God's natural predisposition towards us is one of anger, wrath, and justice. This has been since Genesis 3. It is the natural condition of men, we have all sinned and do not experience the glory of God in and of our own efforts. But we see that God makes a way for men to come to him from the very beginning. Genesis 4, Abel sacrificed a lamb. 
And by faith, his sacrifice was more acceptable than Cain. Isaac's life was spared because God provided a lamb to be the sacrifice in his place. In Exodus, it was the blood of a lamb on the doorpost of the house that caused the angel of death to pass over the house of the Israelites and spare the life of their firstborn. In Leviticus, the scapegoats and the sacrificial lamb symbolically took upon themselves the sin of the nation. The prophet Isaiah refers to the Messiah as one who, like a lamb, would lead, would be led to the slaughter. So when John the Baptist sees his cousin Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In this very statement, John draws a distinction between all these lambs that died, and all these goats that died, and all these bulls that died, so that Israel could be temporarily forgiven for their sins. Behold, the Lamb of God. Which Lamb of God is this? This is the Lamb of God who actually takes away the sin of the world. You see, a lamb is not a moral agent, right? Lambs, they just walk around, eat grass, and that's all they do, right? They're not moral. So lambs cannot take the place of a human in a sacrifice because they've done in, they haven't done anything right or wrong. But Jesus, Jesus is a man. And he came and lived a life free of sin, spotless, a righteous life. He was perfectly righteous. God taking on humanity, fully God, fully man. He lived as the spotless, spotless lamb, died on the cross. A, die, a death he did not deserve, but a death that provided us with our propitiation and was raised in the third day. This is the gold standard. What God says, he means, and he backs it up with actions. God doesn't just say he loves us. He gives us his son as a proof of this love. He did not leave us with the bulls and goats. He actually gave us one who could take upon himself our sin. God doesn't say he forgives us. He places on Christ the sin we have committed. Christ paid for our penalties. And there's no double jeopardy in heaven. A sin paid by Christ is a sin we bear no more. Remember when the man of Israel stood before Peter, right? And Peter proclaimed the first message of Pentecost. Peter says, you kill the author of life. You kill the son of God. And they're cut to the heart and they say to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what must we do? And what does Peter say? Here's the perfect opportunity to say against that sin, there is no forgiveness. I mean, you killed Jesus. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, repent. Repent. And friends, if there is forgiveness for those who killed Jesus on that cross, there is forgiveness for you. Whatever sin you've committed in your past, 
It is not greater than the killing of the Son of God. And if those men can be forgiven, so can you. God gives us His Son. And He doesn't just tell us He loves us. He actually demonstrates us by providing for us through Christ a way to be forgiven. Not only are we our sins forgiven, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. So we don't need to be accepted by God through our own actions. If Christ is accepted by God, then so are we. And friend, at Christmas we celebrate the greatest gift that God has given. It is Christ. And you can have him too if we'll simply receive him by faith. If you will confess your sins before God, He will forgive your sins. And at the end of time, we'll hear about that Lamb again. There will be a great chorus that will sing before the throne of God and before the throne of the Lamb, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests and, and pre, a kingdom and priests to our God. And that they shall reign on the earth. So, friends, if you trust in Christ today, you will one day be a part of the chorus that will sing worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you because Jesus is the greatest gift we could ever need, desire, or want. Thank you, Lord, that one day we did not love you. That at a point we hated you and rejected you. But Father, through Christ we've been transformed. And now... What is true of us is that we love you and we cherish you. Thank you, Father, that Jesus came as a baby. But he didn't stay a baby. He grew and he died. And he was buried and he was raised for our justification. So this Christmas Eve morning, we praise you for Christ. And we thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>